uh, by way of introduction, remember Paul said the reason he was writing this letter to Timothy is in 1 Timothy 3.15. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So I'm trying to give you an outline of what church should look like. Now, this is, this is really powerful because the last 2,000 years, the Gospels reached a lot of different parts of the planet, right? And um, culturally, things are very unique. I was uh, in the country of Jordan a while back, and it's tribal. It's completely tribal. And we were there working with the Nazarene church, and everybody in the tribe, uh, this large Arab area, they were all Nazarenes because they are a part of that tribe. But then you go a little further, the other group of Christians are Baptists, but they could never be Nazarene because they would have to change tribes. Um, so they got to remain Baptist. Uh, interesting, uh, again, how it looks. And of course, in that culture, um, mostly everything's outdoor, even the way the houses are built. They're, they're sort of outside and inside altogether. They're not like our type of houses where you shut the door and you're inside. These you get through, you shut the door, and you're in a compound. So uh, it, it looks very different. You know, I, I remember uh, back when the Church of Christ, you might remember the Boston Church of Christ, they were a cult. The Church of Christ actually kicked them out. But their whole point was, uh, until you're baptized by them, you're not saved. And I, I thought, well, this is going to be very interesting. As soon as they get the parts of the world where there's no water, you know, you have to be fully submerged. And then I thought it would be very interesting when they hit Alaska. And, and you know, parts of this world where, you know, you just can't find a, 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 enough water to submerge somebody in water every single time. And, and so it's, it's quite interesting. So I, I think uh, one of the mistakes we make when we think about the church is we think of our building first. You know, we're going to go to church, the building. And then I, I think we make a big mistake by, by thinking, you know, Sunday morning is 99% is of, of what's required of Christians. And, you know, the pastors and the choirs and Sunday school teachers, everybody's putting their energy into that Sunday morning gathering. And when you really start thinking about it, what, is, what do we do on a Sunday morning that's really in the Bible? It's not bad. Extra biblical stuff is wonderful. So there's no guitars in the Bible. So it's not bad. That's unbiblical. It's, it, we would call it extra biblical. So if you look at our Western design of a building, it's extra biblical. It's not unbiblical. It's not bad at all. I'm just saying it's not in the Bible. Okay? When Jesus said, I will build my church, I don't think he was thinking of steeples with crosses on the top and stained glass windows. Nor did I, do I, was it, do I think he was thinking about Rome and the Pope and a grand poobah hat and, you know, 20 pounds of gold around his neck either. I, I, I you know, you say, well, look, that's weird. Jesus never thought it. Well, some of the stuff we do is pretty weird. It's not in the Bible. You know, we got pulpits and lobbies and pews and we have, you know, 
all kinds of musical instruments that, that you know, we don't see in the New Testament. We, in the Old Testament, we see some of that. I, I'm just saying, when we really start saying, Jesus said what? what? What is something that Jesus said that the church would definitely be doing? And, and what did Jesus say the church would be doing the most? Did, did Jesus say something like, hey, this is the, you know, when, when the church gets going, guys, after I die and raise again, this is something you're going to be doing a lot more than you're doing now. Well, when we look at Jesus' life, the disciples never asked Jesus, teach us to do miracles. Teach us to preach awesome sermons. Teach us to walk on water. <laughs> teach us to break the bread. Teach us. The only thing the apostles ever asked Jesus specifically for insider information on was how to pray. And if you look at it in the Gospel of Matthew, that was at the very beginning of the ministry. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and we have the Lord's Prayer there, we call it. And, and Jesus talks about persistence in prayer. In the Gospel of Luke, they asked Jesus the same question. And Jesus adds a little more to it, but almost the same teaching. And that's at the end of his ministry. So the disciples knew if we can crack the code on Jesus' prayer life, we crack the code on everything. It, it really, the thing that stands out with Jesus more than anything, and Jesus stood out in a lot of pretty phenomenal ways, they knew from hanging out with him, the, the multitudes wouldn't necessarily know this, but being behind the scenes with Jesus, the thing that was most impressive to them was his prayer life. And they sensed that Jesus understood prayer in a way that they didn't understand prayer. They didn't feel like they got the answer at the beginning of his ministry and they asked it again at the end. At the end. And, um, and uh, we have a, a bell going off. This is part of the fun of a meeting outside. I, I didn't know if that was like a call to a Buddhist prayer or that was a call to an ice cream truck. I had a lot of feelings going on there with that bell. Angels getting wings. I mean, I had all kinds of feelings. I'm just glad it's over. Anyway, so Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore I exhort first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. That's, that's all we're going to cover here tonight. So he, he, after chapter 1, talking about a number of issues, and uh, he ends by telling him to fight the good fight, to persist and keep the faith and a good conscience. He says, now when it comes to the church, which is the church of the living God, the church is the pillar of the, the ground of the truth. First of all, I exhort first of all. The word exhort, parakaleho, it is a very, very strong word. Here it's translated exhort or invoke, beseech. In, in Romans 15.30, matter of fact, talking on prayer, he uses the same word. But in Romans 15.30, it's translated, I beg you. I beg you, talking to the church in Rome. I beg you, brethren. I parakaleho you through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So first of all, he's coming out now. He's saying, okay, we, we got through the introduction chapter. Now let's get down to, uh, you know, the, the real 
important stuff about the church, the pillar of the living God, the ground of the truth. We are something powerful. We're something that's not moved. We're something without us, civilization will fall apart. It really does come down to the real foundation is Christianity. And, and what is the foundation of the church? He tells us it's prayer. First of all, or maybe we would say it this way, the top priority, the main thing that you need to keep as the main thing is prayer. We're not surprised at that, right? Remember Jesus came into the temple? He started, you know, got, got a whip and turned over t tables and all of that. It says the zeal of his father's house ate him up. And Jesus didn't say, my house is a place where the word of God's going to be preached. This is a place where people are going to get baptized. This is a place where evangelism is going to happen. Twice Jesus did it, and both times he said what? My father's house is to be what? A house of prayer. So whether it's in an Arab country, in, in a, you know, sort of a, a group of houses with a courtyard in it, or whether it's in a big traditional building of some type, the, the house that the God's building, the church, the top priority, he would walk in and the people would get this. Singing, wonderful. Preaching, wonderful. Evangelism, wonderful. Baptizing, wonderful. Discipling children, wonderful. But the thing that, that should overpower all other duties, all other practices we are doing in the church, it's prayer above all and it's it's interesting if you've been in countries that have been persecuted that is mainly what they do <laughs> I remember going into Hungary this was right after the Iron Curtain fell and we were trying to find Christians and seek out Christians we found some and that's you know they would worship a little bit of singing and then they would pray for hours then he'd have a little Bible study, and then they would pray some hours. I've been around Chinese Christians behind the bamboo curtain. It's the same thing. I mean, they, they, they love to sing, but they pray for hours. They, they, they preach the word, but they pray for hours. And, and you, you really get it. The, the main thing, the most important thing the church is involved in, the thing that was in God's, our Lord's heart, that his house wherever his house would be. And of course, that house was the temple that Herod had built, a wicked king. It really wasn't about the building, was it? He was just saying, this is where you're calling, you're calling all people to worship in this location. So this is my house, this is my father's house. But the thing that's not happening, it should be happening more than anything. You're distracted by a lot of various things. And my house is not a house of prayer. And that's exactly what should be going on here. There's a quote that says this, Those strong in faith make prayer a first priority, but those who are weak in faith make prayer a last thought. It's interesting. It's sort of like, I can't do anything for you, but I'll pray. It's sort of like, a, I'm really not going to pray for you. Uh, it's sort of something I say that I sort of 
I'm, I'm totally useless. I can't help you, but I'll pray. And, and even then, it wasn't like, I'm doing something for you. It's like almost like a, a, just a, a phrase we say. Interesting. The first time God ever said, write the Bible. Write this down. I'm going to start writing Scripture through you. It's found in Exodus 17. And you might remember that story in verse 8 to 14. This is where they had left Egypt and the Malachites were doing this guerrilla warfare where they would pick off the, the, the trailing people that were weak and sick and half-hearted. And they just kept killing them, killing them, killing them. And finally Moses said, stop. And here are these Jews who came out of Egypt. The Egyptians make sure they never knew how to hold a bow and arrow or how to use a spear. They, they made sure they had no skill in military form whatsoever unless the Hebrews would overthrow the Egyptians. And so he says, Joshua, you got to get a bunch of guys together and whatever we have, you need to go down and fight against a very experienced, large, trained army. But we have no choice because they're, they're relentless in picking us off. We have to stop. And you guys remember this story, right? Moses, his brother Aaron, and a guy named Hur, they went up and where they could see all the fighting going on. And Moses is there going, Lord, help. And he lifts his arms up and he's, God, help. And, and, and his arms are up and, he, and, he, and Aaron or her probably said, look at that, they're, they're winning. And Aaron brought down, or Moses brought down his arms to watch and they were losing. And through an aspect of trial and error, he realized he had to keep his arms up. This 80-year-old guy. And the battle started at the very beginning of the day. And the battle went on through the entire day until the sun was going down. It said they got his, uh, his staff and he would, you know, sort of hang on to it for a while and push it for a while. Oh, man, I, my arm's hard even thinking about that. <laughs> but Aaron and her finally set him down on a rock and he was just sort of hanging on. It was agonizing. That's the picture we have. And what happened at the end of the battle? You know, here's Joshua and the gang going, never saw a bow and arrow, but I didn't miss one time. I didn't even know what to do with that spear, and I killed ten people at one time. I'm, man, we are amazing warriors. And God said, Moses, write this down in front of Joshua. That it didn't matter really what they were doing in the valley. The victory was really decided by Moses' praying, right? When the hands were up and he was praying victory, when the hands came down, they were losing. And even though down in the valley it looked like they knew what they were doing and looking like they were, you know, really bad, strong warriors, it really wasn't the truth. The truth was, that Moses' prayer did it all. Not part of it, but did it all. And this is the first scripture. He says in, in, there in Exodus 17, verse 14, And he said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. And this is again. We see, first of all, I exhort you, first of all, and then he says, Supplication. 
Again, this word supplication is, is a word that also means to beg. It's talking about an intensity. I beseech you. It's a striving. It's not a casual asking. It's, it's like the starving man asking for the guy with food, a bag of groceries. He's begging him for that bag of groceries. He's starving to death. There are a man dying of thirst watching a, a man taking a drink out of a bottle saying, I beg you, give me some of that water. This is the word supplication. So, you know, th- there's no build up here. It's not like sort of a tiptoe in the water. He's saying, I, I exhort you, this is number one priority, that you just fall on your face and start begging. Intensity, supplication, striving. We see this, um, this in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 26 and 27, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercessions for us with what? Groanings, supplications, and earnestness which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Going back to Romans 15.30, listen to what Paul says to the church in I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you, what? Strive. That's the word agonizomai. There's a scent in front of it, S-Y-N, which is agonize together with others. You all together, not just one guy agonizing. You know, sometimes you have that in a prayer meeting, right? You got, oh, Lord, thank you for the day. And then the next guy, Lord, help us. You know, and then, oh, and the next guy is like, thank you for the beautiful sunshine today. And the next guy, God, we're dying. You know, it, 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 the, idea, the idea is that everybody's supplicating. Everybody's striving. Everybody's agonizing in this prayer. And this is what he says, if you do that for me. Now, now some say, hold on, hold on. I, I thought the servant of the Lord must not strive. Remember that in 2 Timothy 2, 24? The servant of the Lord must not strive. That's in the old King James. The new King James says argue or be argumentative with those who are in opposition. But when it comes to the area of prayer, we strive. <laughs> okay? So if the Christian isn't to be striving in every other spiritual duty, I'll agree with you on that. But when it comes to the area of prayer, from the book of Genesis to all the way to Revelation, this is where we do find his people striving, agonizomai, together with supplication. We think of that story of Jacob, right? Man, that guy couldn't ever get it right, could he? He he was he was always manipulating. He was a genius. He, 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 was, he would figure out a scheme and he would pull it off. Elaborate sc- schemes, I mean, right? I mean, he got hair and pasted on his body. I, I don't know what kind of paste he used. But it was the right, right type of hair, so his dad would think it was Esau. You know, he, he, he made a special stew, but he had to figure out the flavors, the, the way Esau made it. I mean, it was, it was no small thing to pull that off. But he was a very, very clever guy. 
A lot of times, clever people are the ones who end up in prison. Huh? They, they, they think they are much more clever than they really are. Well, Jacob finally hit the wall. All his cleverness wasn't going to help him out anymore. And he was in a rock and a hard place. And remember that story where the Lord met him and as a wrestler. Interesting, huh? I wonder if the, the Lord looked like a big Japanese sumo wrestler. I wonder. Ah, mm. I don't know what the Lord looked like, but it was clearly, we're going to have a wrestling match. And they fought and they fought. And there's times where Jacob thought, you know, he, he's, he's strong enough and he's, he's clever enough to take this guy and, and maybe win this battle. But then as the sun started coming out, it was time to end it. The Lord just, boop, one little touch, poo, his whole hip blown out. It was clear message to Jacob, I was never close to winning. There was, you know, he made me think many, many times I was doing really good at this battle. And, you know, it was pretty even, you know, 50-50. But at the end, he made it clear I never had a chance of ever winning this battle. And it's interesting that, again, the Lord stirred Jacob into this place of wrestling with him. And he made it clear. What's your name? Jacob, a hill catcher, a sneaky, clever guy. Not anymore Israel, one who's been governed by God. Where did that happen? When he wrestled with the Lord. And in wrestling with the Lord, he came to this place of full submission to God. And he says, now you'll prevail with God and you'll prevail with man. Because of this night we spent all night long wrestling with me. We know that passage well about Elijah in James 5, verse 16 to 18, don't we? The effective, what? Fervent prayer. Not casual prayer, but a fervent prayer of a righteous man avails what? Much. Let's think about that a minute. Prayer avails much. But, but the point of prayer is, is that we don't see it always. A matter of fact, often the Lord answers our prayers and makes sure we don't see it. Because we would get so caught up in that, we would quit living. We're going to get to heaven, and the books are going to come out, and we're going to see that every time we prayed according to His will, we received that prayer, but He didn't let us see it. Because there were just so many answers to prayer that we literally would have just gotten so caught up with how many prayers were answered, we wouldn't be able to live properly. And so, the same with Elijah. A lot of things were happening that he didn't see, but the things he did get to see, pretty magnificent. But Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Feel sorry for the guy. <laughs> but what is he saying here? Elijah didn't have a special DNA prayer gene. Elijah didn't have a special calling. Elijah was, was a unique man of prayer, and we just all need to go, wow. Like Samson had the supernatural strength. Elijah had a special prayer strength that we can all go, wow, I wish I had that too. No. Elijah was weak, sinful, struggling, not a tremendous amount of faith. 
not a great obedient guy. Not, he didn't know the Bible more than most people know the Bible. He was pretty average, like pretty where we're at. But what distinguished him, even though he was just like you and me, a really regular average guy, he prayed how? Earnestly. That it would not rain. It didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. You guys remember that story in 1 Kings 18? Where finally there, there was repentance on behalf of the people after they prayed. They said, well, who can bring fire to heaven? And, 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 and the bell worshipers couldn't. And Elijah did. And, and uh, he thought, now, now Jezebel and Ahab are going to see who's the real God. But when it got back to them that their prophets had been killed, 400 of them, they just said, we're going to kill Elijah. There was no repentance. And Elijah just melted down. He's just like, if we call fire to heaven, consumes the sacrifice, and that doesn't move them spiritually, there's no hope. But yet, his servant, he said, come here. They were on the Mount Carmel, and, and he put his head down between his knees, and he just started praying, and, and he looked up, and hasn't rained in a long time. We haven't seen any clouds in years. And, and he says, go, go over there and look towards probably the ocean west. We can't see it from where we're at. I'm looking east. And, and go see if there's anything coming from the other direction. And he came back, nothing. And he prayed again and again. And, and remember, it was on the seventh time. I say to you, if it, was on, if it was needed to be 700 times, he would have kept praying. But his servant came back and said, well, really nothing but well, there's this cloud about the size of a man's hand. I, I don't. I, I almost didn't want to mention it. And Elijah said, "Take off running because you're going to get caught in a thunderstorm." And what do we find here again? He prayed earnestly; it would not rain, and it didn't. He prayed again earnestly that it would rain, and it did. And it brought the entire nation to repentance. I don't have this verse in my notes here, but. Second Chronicles 7.14, right? If my people will humble themselves and what? Pray. Turn from their quick way. They will hear from heaven and I will heal their land or their nation. There's a promise. It's not, it's not like the devil got more powerful. Or the devil used to be somewhat of an evil guy, but sort of a nice evil guy. But these last decades, he's really evil now. He used to, the devil used to not be as evil as he is now. Didn't happen, did it? He, he's just as evil. He's just as wicked. But what's the answer? Why is the fact that the nation's struggling? It's not that evil's gotten more powerful or there's more people that are evil. It's simply that God's people are not praying with this same earnestness. And he reminds us, if we will, he will heal the land. Jesus is an example of this striving. Uh, we, we know there in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Right up to the end, he was praying. And he told three of the guys, come with me and stay here. But, but you know, just pray, man, pray. And, and Jesus was praying so earnestly. And, and he found the guys asleep. Jesus didn't say, oh, just you guys have been through so much these last three years. This has been such a stressful couple of weeks. 
just sleep away. No, does he say that? He's like, I don't care how tired you are. I don't care how weak you are. You make yourself stay awake and pray. That's what it, that was his attitude. Sort of opposite of what we would have thought Jesus would have been. One who was so gentle and lowly of heart. We found rest for his souls, but not when it came to prayer. He woke them up three different times. But what do we find in Luke 22 about Jesus? It says in verse 44 that he was in agony and he prayed earnestly. His sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was striving in prayer. In Hebrews 5, verse 7 and 8, it describes Jesus' prayer life. Who in the days of his flesh, just talking about Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was the son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That when it came to prayer, it's in a class of its own. We see this in the epistles. Paul describes this of himself and of others that were a note. In Colossians 4, verse 2 to 4, continue, he tells the church, earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open the door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, which is also in chains, that I may make it manifest how I ought to speak. He goes on down in Colossians 4.12 again. Epaphras, who's one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you. Listen to these three words. Always laboring fervently for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and plead in the will of God. In Ephesians 6.18, praying how? Always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to the end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, night and day, praying how? Exceedingly, that you may see the, his see your face and perfect what's lacking in your faith. I beg you that the number one priority, the main thing that God's church would be known for is this earnest, Striving, always continuing earnestly with prayer and supplication, keeping our hands lifted up until the battle is won. Even if it means blood vessels breaking in our body and blood and sweat coming out like with Jesus. Your flesh is weak, but you got to wake up and pray. And he mentions four different aspects. He says prayers, or he says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and then fourthly, giving of thanks. So he talked about supplication, prayers. I mean, I think it's simply said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, right? Pray without what? Ceasing. So there's the morning prayers. Interesting, in the Hebrew culture, there was the morning incense. Then there was the nighttime incense. So our morning oblations, wake up with Jesus crying out to him. My kids, when they were small and I was wake them up, I'd roll them out of bed on their knees. And I'd say, always start the day with prayer. Before you put your foot on the ground, get your knee on the ground and pray. 
And so let's get that morning. We got the one where we're falling asleep at night praying. We got those times where we wake up in the middle of the night praying. We got those kinds where we're walking along the way or we're driving along the way. Where there's all kinds of, of various prayers. There's prayers by yourself, there's prayers with the group. Then there's intercessions. Uh, Jesus loved this one. This, this, Jesus loved this aspect of prayer. He loves it today. In Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he also is able to save the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always, what? Lives to make intercessions for them. Hebrews 8.34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also, what? Makes intercessions for us. I can't tell you how many times somebody would just come to mind. Sometimes it's a missionary on the other side of the world. Sometimes it's a family member. And I would have this sense of something, danger or temptation or, or depression, and just start praying that God would strengthen them to find out later that at the same moment I was praying was the same moment they were going through a very hard thing. Jesus loves this. He loves to just have the right prayer targeted for the right situation to get them through it. Remember what he said to, to Peter? Satan was to, desires to sift you as wheat, but it's not going to happen because I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 53, 12, interesting concerning Jesus and his intercession, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. And what else did Jesus do on the cross? He made intercessions for the transgression. Boy, when you say pray without ceasing, you would have thought this is one time that, you know, Jesus would have got a pass with nails through his hands, crown of thorns on his head, knelt through his feet. You'd say, yeah, you know, you know, if you're ever in a situation where you've got nails driven through your body, you don't have to pray, okay? There's a time you don't need to pray. But in reality, there is no situation where God isn't calling us to pray. And some of the most powerful Jesus prayers Jesus prayed for us sinners was on that cross, right? And again, in Romans 8, 26, and 27, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. I'll just admit to you right now, prayer, being a man of prayer, is a weakness. Chuck Smith used to always say, he said, I know I'm going to go to see the Lord, and the first thing I'm going to regret when I get to heaven is that I didn't pray more. He goes, I, I know I just don't pray as I ought. And, and I think we have that sense because the Bible says we receive not because what? We ask not. We just didn't think about it. I mean, have you ever been in that situation where you're upset and you're mad and you're trying to figure it out and then your little eight-year-old kid will go, well, Dad, why don't we pray about it? Shut up, kid. Get away from here. It's like, I, I didn't even think about praying. I didn't even enter my mind to pray. But yet that's exactly what should have been the very first thought. So I'm so thankful that God knows in our human frailty that prayer is a weakness. We need to pray more. 
for we do not know what we should pray for. Part of it is we just don't know how to pray. We don't know what the will of God is. But the Spirit Himself makes intercessions with us groanings. And it's just like, oh, I don't have the words, but God's Spirit groaning from our spirit. Maybe this is referring to speaking in tongues. I don't know. But either way, it's, it's in a perfect will of God. These groanings are happening. Which, which again tells us that we don't have to have the right prayer, you know? That God's going to give us what we need far more than what we even understood. And of course, thanksgiving. That's it. True prayer, true faith that gives God thanks. Thank you, Lord, in advance. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Boy, that prayer, we, we, those verses we need more today than any other time. Uh, th- this millennial generation has got to be the most stressed out generation that's ever lived on this earth. There, there is more antidepressants being consumed by America ever before in history and and I don't mean to put anybody down because probably half of you are on antidepressants Um, and and after my my son died a few years ago I started having panic attacks and I I actually was on them for a while so I I know that there are seasons but yet the Lord is saying it's, it's through that time of prayer and just surrendering to the Lord and knowing God is going to answer it according to his perfect will, that that should give us a great peace as we thank him in advance. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you for saying no. Thank you for saying wait. Thank you for not limiting your answer to prayer by what I could think or come up in a prayer because I know it's limited. And just that heart of thankfulness that God does have it all in control. Well, I want to end here just sort of washing you with a number of wonderful verses on prayer that bless me. Ezekiel 22:30. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before, before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Radical, isn't it? He's saying that that's us. Every one of us are to be standing between the destruction of our nation and God healing our nation. And God is saying, all I needed was one man and I wouldn't have destroyed the nation. But I couldn't find one person who would come in faith and pray. Pretty radical, isn't it? Again, James 4, 2, we know that verse well, yet you do not have because you do not ask. There were just... Wasn't enough faith to even consider praying. Here's some great quotes. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can do no more than pray until you've prayed. With God, you are a majority. God's on the throne. We are at his footstool, only a knee's distance apart. Jeremiah 33.3 Call unto me and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Matthew 7, 8. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. 
John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus is the one who's sort of outrageous on prayer. Now, guys, ask for prayer, but don't get crazy and ask for me to move, move mountains or something. He did, Jesus is like, hey, you want that mountain moved? Pray for it. He's the one who told us, go crazy. Think of the absurd. There's nothing impossible with God, so think impossible prayers. It's okay. I'm not offended. I'll say no, but go ahead and ask. <laughs> and um, in John 14, oh, ask anything I do. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Isn't that interesting? I chose you before the foundation of the world. And one of the main reasons I chose you is that you would be a praying machine. Oh, but I'm called to have a ministry. Yes, that's right. I called you. You have a ministry. You're fruitful. But that the main thing is you would be asking the Father and He'd be answering prayers. 1 John 5, 14 to 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we'll have the petition that we have asked of Him. In Ephesians three twenty. Now to Him who is able to do, I love this, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Lord, we, we get it. That the church that you built is to bring you glory, to lift you up. It's not by the power of our flesh, but it's just by a simple obedience of looking to you, trusting you, asking you. And we know that you are, and you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. There's so many verses on prayer. It would take us weeks to cover all the various stories and verses on prayer. But we get your heart, Lord, that this house, Calvary Chapel, Los Alamitos, is to, above all things, be a house of prayer. With, by ourselves, with one other person, with a group of people, in the morning, at night, in the weekdays, in the weeknights, in hospitals, in birthday parties, in every situation that we would believe you to do great and mighty things that we know not of. That you're, you want us to come with expectant, trusting hearts that whatever we come and believe you to do it, you will do it. So Lord, here we are. We just ask that you'd cause us from this point forward to be a people of prayer. This Friday night, Lord, those who can make it, whether they're here in body or at least with this here in spirit, that they would be crying out to you, Lord, what, what is it in this coronavirus season that you, you want of us? We know that there's something now during this time that's stopping everybody, giving us an advantage to be a greater light, a greater salt. But, Lord, we, we need your voice. We need your direction. Guide us, lead us, help us, Lord. Forgive us, cleanse us, wash us, purify us. Make us a people sanctified, set apart for your use. 
in the use of prayer above all. We yield it before you in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.